It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop. And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any tips as it pertains to this story, please reach out to tips at gangstercapitalism.com or our tip line 347-674-6980. We can ensure anonymity. The Nation's Gun Show is back! Dulles Expo Center, Chantilly, Virginia, this weekend! Get your supplies while you still can! 1,300 tables! Over two miles of everything you need for the shooting sports, self-defense, and more. It's November 22nd, 2019, and I'm standing in line at the Dulles Expo Center in Chantilly, Virginia, for the Nation's Gun Show. As I enter, I'm told to register for a chance to win a door prize. Don't forget to sign up for our door prize, which is giving away an AR-15 on Sunday at 4 o'clock. Once I'm inside the 130,000 square foot space, I'm introduced to Annette Elliott. Annette is the owner of a company that books and promotes 52 gun shows a year in three states, including this event. Annette's like the mayor here. She seems to know everyone. Public attendance this weekend will be between 12 and 15,000 people. There are 1,300 separate tables here. There's over 330 different exhibitors. I mean, I have one exhibitor that he could sell up to 1,000 guns, and he has sold 1,000 guns in a weekend when we came out of Sandy Hook, and the average sale price is 650. So 650,000 for one exhibitor. So. Multiply that by 1,300 tables in here. So there is a lot of money that goes through. It's a huge economic impact when events like this come in. Annette begins each day of the show with an announcement. And this time, she speaks to those in attendance about something near and dear to her heart, the NRA. After her announcement, I asked Annette about some of the things that have been reported about the NRA. The fact that Wayne LaPierre received a 55% raise and was paid two and a quarter million dollars in 2018. The half million dollars spent on LaPierre's clothes and luxury travel. And the $24 million in legal fees to attorney Bill Brewer, okayed by LaPierre. 
all of which was paid for with member money. There's been a huge smear campaign against the NRA, and the stuff that they're saying is not true. Wayne LaPierre does not care anything about his clothing. He was always kind of a frumpy dresser, to tell the truth, and he just didn't care. And the PR firm is the one that told him he needed to get better clothes, you know, you need to dress nicer. He really is a great man. Great, smart men make a lot of money. We need NRA and we need Wayne LaPierre. He's just that smart and he's done that much for America and for protecting guns. And so has the NRA. And we do need the NRA. And we need Wayne LaPierre. Because he is the man on the white horse. If you look at the progression of today's modern Wayne, somebody told him that money is good. Dad wanted Ackerman and McQueen out. He wanted them fired. Money attracts power and power attracts money. And there are always going to be people looking for their piece of the action. I'm Andrew Jenks. This is Gangster Capitalism, Season 2, The NRA. calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The threats are all around us. Russia is advancing. The Islamic State is consolidating power with beheadings, rapes, murders, and atrocities. They're carving a bloody trail that leads to our doorstep. They're already here. How much longer before the horrors that we've witnessed in Paris or in Copenhagen come to the supposedly gun-free zone of the Mall of America. Think about that. Or for that matter, the mall in your town, wherever you live. It's not if, it's just when. When I first saw that someone named Wayne LaPierre was the head of the National Rifle Association, I said, ah, I wonder if that could be my Wayne LaPierre. I don't think so. And I checked it out, and sure enough, it was my Wayne LaPierre. That's Mike Roberti, 
Mike was a political science professor at Siena College in upstate New York in the late 60s and early 70s. It was the peak of the Vietnam War, and distrust in government was raging on college campuses. One of his students during that time was Wayne LaPierre. He was displeased with government and felt that they were letting us all down, which would not be any different from most of the kids who were in that political science department. They felt that it wasn't responsive to human needs, that the government was controlled by lobbyists and had no interests in the people themselves. My sense of Wayne is that he was angry, as they all were, but he wanted to turn that anger into something productive. So he was committed to whatever he was interested in, but he was not going to be a jerk about going about getting it done. He was just a nice guy with an agenda. But if you had asked me where he might end up trying to influence government, I didn't see him as an NRA type of person. Fresh out of college, Wayne took a job as a legislative aide for a Democrat in Virginia's House of Delegates. In 1976, LaPierre worked on an NRA-backed state law which established his first contact with the organization. And two years later, when a position opened up at the Institute for Legislative Action, better known as ILA, the NRA's lobbying arm, Wayne LaPierre was hired. Wayne, deep down, is a very shy person. He had a reputation of being honest and being smart. I mean, Wayne came off like a a college professor. That's John Aquilino. John was deputy director of ILA and later became head of communications. And he remembers LaPierre making quite an impression. I remember coming down the elevator, getting off on the lobby floor, and seeing a trail of papers, notepads, congressional records, books, going from the elevator literally across the floor to the front door. And there were also books going down the sidewalk to where one would expect you would get on a taxi cab. So I looked over at Nanny, who was this wonderful woman that basically greeted you when you came into the building. I said, Nanny, is this Wayne? Nanny burst out laughing. She goes, yeah, John. (laughs) He just went out and got in a cab. So I picked up all his stuff (laughs) and brought it back to his office. But he had no damn idea. He he must have dropped 15 different notepads, books, etc. on his way to the cab. Despite his quirks, Wayne was making a name for himself as a savvy lobbyist at a time when the NRA was trying to broaden its support in Congress. As part of its larger strategy to create new allies in the U.S. House and Senate, NRA leadership felt it needed a fresh face leading the federal division, 
which handles all lobbying in the United States Congress. And since the NRA was looking to make friends, it didn't want to hire or promote someone with an abrasive personality. We had some people who I was told by senators to absolutely keep that person out of my office or I will vote the other way. And Wayne was not controversial. He was very almost shy or timid in his approach. Basically, he was no threat to anybody. Wayne was like vanilla ice cream. You know, nobody dislikes vanilla ice cream. Putting Wayne in that position was the least controversial and most effective approach because the last thing we wanted was to build enemies in Congress. So I went into Wayne's office, and I said, Wayne, we have got to fill the federal lobbyist position, head of the federal division. And you know, it was a, oh, uh hum, oh, uh hum. I said, and we're thinking you would be a really good person to run that office. And he was like, oh, my God. I got to deal with personalities. I got to deal with leading a division. He was afraid of the spotlight. He just would rather go from his office to his job and just be quiet. So he says, no, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. About two, three days later... I come back and I said, Wayne, have you rethought it? Have you changed your mind? No, I, I really don't want to do that. I just don't feel comfortable. So now we're getting down to deadline. And I can try one more time. Go into his office. I say, Wayne, don't worry about it. Listen, don't even give it another thought. We've got a different candidate. And he goes, you know, I have changed my mind. I think I'd like that job. Truth of the matter, I was lying to Wayne. We didn't have anybody that we wanted to put in the job, just him. By accepting the job as head of the federal division, new doors and new opportunities were opening for LaPierre. If you look at the progression, somebody told him that money is good. The negative aspects of today's modern Wayne, I think, began with a relationship with a fellow named Rene Voss. Rene Voss owned a gun shop in Alexandria, Virginia, called Old Town Armory. In addition to being a gun store proprietor, Voss was a lobbying consultant for the NRA. In the mid-1980s, Voss was approached about a deal to import 200,000 U.S. military surplus M1 rifles from South Korea, which could then be sold in American gun stores at a profit of almost $150 million in today's dollars. Voss decided to spearhead the endeavor, first by starting a company in order to import the guns, which he called Blue Sky Productions, and then enlisting Wayne LaPierre as his partner. It is not inconceivable 
that someone, an entrepreneur like Renee, could have easily said to Wayne, how would you like to make a fast half a million dollars? <laughs> okay. And the reason Wayne would be important is in order to use his prestige to smooth the way. Voss had confidence that Wayne LaPierre could lobby Congress to change the laws which would allow the deal to go through. But after a snag, the FBI questioned LaPierre's involvement with Blue Sky. He denied knowledge of the M1 deal, distanced himself from Voss and Blue Sky, and no wrongdoing was ever proven. But the M1 guns were eventually imported. LaPierre denied any knowledge of being involved with Blue Sky to import these guns, except for the fact that he was involved in the lobbying of the very measure that would have allowed for the guns to be imported. That's Josh Sugarman. Josh is the executive director at the Violence Policy Center, a nonprofit that studies gun violence in America. He's also the author of National Rifle Association, Money, Firepower, and Fear. And Josh says that when this deal was finally consummated, the U.S. gun market was changed forever. When you look at the trajectory of the marketing of military weapons in the U.S., the M1s were sort of the first military guns that were imported into the U.S., surplus military. And if you want to chart the beginning of America's fascination with militarized weapons, you could point to the M1s as the beginning of that chain. You can go from the M1 to the SKS, to the AKs, the AR-15s, to a wide range of additional new militarized firearms, made them actually just semi-auto versions of uh, full-auto machine guns that define the gun market today in the United States. All right. Okay, so what we have here, at the front area, we have lots of handguns and rifles. Just all kinds of great stuff. Here's the NRA display that we talked about earlier. Back at the nation's gun show, Annette gives me a tour of the convention. You looking for a carbine? She introduces me to a firearms vendor who deals primarily in military collectibles. He shows me an M1 carbine, the same gun involved in the Blue Sky deal. This is a U.S. M1 carbine. It's a World War II service weapon invented to replace a pistol for troops who didn't need a full-size battle rifle. It's a lightweight rifle. It's good for close range. Insert the magazine, make sure it's seated, pull the bolt handle back, let it go home. This is a typical GI rebuild, and it's a little over 1,000, almost 1,100. Welcome to capitalism at its best. It's 1986, and ABC World News Tonight with Peter Jennings has a special guest. 
Finally this evening, our person of the week, Wayne LaPierre. On Capitol Hill this week, and in thousands of communities all across the land, one of the more explosive issues has been gun control. It was only yesterday that the House of Representatives voted to make the gun laws a lot weaker. They have been in place since 1968 when Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were murdered. Those laws have also been under attack ever since by the National Rifle Association. Our person who made a difference did it behind the scenes. It was his job to convince so many congressmen to vote the way the NRA wanted them to vote. I think we made a difference because we were right on this issue. There was a real need to redirect the law. You bully congressmen? No, not at all. We, we talk with them, we discuss what's in the legislation, and we simply let them know the support for it that's out there. And it's, it's their final decision in terms of what they do. Wayne LaPierre had become the head of ILA, the Institute for Legislative Action. And under his direction, the NRA had become a lobbying powerhouse. But in order to continue wielding that power, the organization needed to keep the source of its strength, its membership, energized and growing. It hired a small advertising agency from Oklahoma City called Ackerman McQueen. At first, Ackerman pitched an overtly political strategy and the NRA balked. Then, the firm proposed a campaign called I Am the NRA, which featured celebrities and everyday citizens posing with their weapons. The campaign was a hit. But after a while, leadership felt the campaign had run its course. Three years into the I Am the NRA campaign, the board of directors said, oh, well, let's stop that because it's just the same old thing. They were shooters. They were not people who understood the concept of repetitious advertising in order to make the public learn what you're trying to sell. So they voted to end the I'm the NRA campaign. Well, that was a $3 million account for Ackerman McQueen. That's John Aquilino again, the former deputy director of ILA. When Ackerman and McQueen lost their $3 million I'm the NRA account, they scrambled to figure out how to replace that income. According to Aquilino, at the time, Ackerman McQueen had also been establishing its relationship with Wayne LaPierre. He was working on the effort to reform, repeal, change the Gun Control Act of 68. And he kept complaining that he needed somebody to deal with his public relations and his marketing. I said, okay, Wayne. Uh, at the time, I had, I think, 14 people working under me, most of them writers and most of them damn good writers. And basically what he did was he got one woman from Ackerman and Queen and did not allow us to participate. Aquilino says that the firm who was hired for advertising was now working on securing the PR business with the NRA. They started to float the idea that they had 
better media contacts than we did. And they also had PC computers, which we had been lobbying for. And the best we could get were IBM Selector typewriters. Wayne LaPierre, who clearly saw value in Ackerman McQueen's PR approach, endorsed the idea. And Aquilino and his entire team were let go. You know, here's Wayne, the head lobbyist. So we were out. It was that simple. Now would be a good time to mention a man named Tony Macris. Remember the Blue Sky Productions M1 rifle deal? I mentioned that a man named Rene Voss had put the deal together and had initially enlisted Wayne LaPierre to help. I also mentioned that Voss was the owner of a gun store called the Old Town Armory. Well, Voss's partner at the gun store was Tony Macris. In addition to being a gun store owner, Macris was also a liaison to Congress for the Department of Defense and a growing power player in D.C. Although Wayne had cut his ties with Rene Voss after the Blue Sky deal initially fell through, the opposite is true of Tony. According to Aquilino, Macris began to spend more time with Wayne at the NRA headquarters. Tony was basically in and out of that office during that whole time. Tony's a very impressive young man. Not so young now. And so I could see Wayne being in awe of him. And Tony, probably more than anybody, knew that Wayne is most likely to be influenced by the last person he talked to. If there was someone who knew how to influence the NRA under Wayne, it would be Tony. By 1991, Wayne LaPierre, the shy policy wonk, was put in the executive vice president's chair of the NRA. He was now at the top of the organization. And just over one year later, Ackerman McQueen announced that it would be hiring a new executive too. Tony Macris would be their new senior vice president and managing director. And the relationship between the NRA and Ackerman was strengthened even more. I was on several committees of the NRA. One of them was public affairs. And at one of these public affairs meetings, Ackerman McQueen really razzle-dazzled us with a whole program of what they could do. I mean, it was fantastic. It was very avant-garde. It was ahead of its time from everything else we'd been doing at NRA. And everybody was very excited. That's Richard Feldman. Richard was a lobbyist at the Institute for Legislative Action and is the author of Ricochet, Confessions of a Gun Lobbyist. I was excited, but I had the misfortune, perhaps, of asking the hard question that I thought I should ask. We were spending money we weren't bringing in at that time. And I said, well, you know, this is a great program. 
but I don't quite get it. Why do you spend the money to excite us about what we could do when we don't have the money to do it? How about presenting us with a program that's in our means? Well, after I asked that question, I was told by several senior board members that I had alienated Ackerman McQueen, and uh, I was never asked back on that committee again. Before Wayne was put in charge, the NRA had enjoyed years, if not decades, of financial stability. But if you look at the annual balance sheets, starting from when Wayne took over as EVP, the NRA ran a deficit of $9.6 million in 1991, $37.4 million in 92, and $33 million in 93, for a total of $79 million in just three years. Red flags were raised when an audit report on the NRA's financial mismanagement was sent to the board of directors in 1996. Sounds familiar, right? After reading the audit report, Wayne LaPierre's former boss at ILA, a man named Neil Knox, had seen enough. Here's Neil's son, Jeff Knox. Dad knew who the problem back then was, and he didn't like the approach that Ackerman McQueen was using with NRA or the power that they were wielding over the internal workings of the NRA. And he was trying to raise the alarm about this vendor and the power that they were accumulating around themselves. As first vice president of the NRA, Neil was next in line to become president. And he confronted LaPierre about Ackerman. Dad wanted Ackerman out. He wanted them fired. And he wanted to bring most of what they were doing in-house. And what couldn't be brought in-house, he wanted somebody new to be handling it. LaPierre capitulated to his former boss. Wayne said, okay, 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 I surrender and we'll get rid of Ackerman and McQueen. And he reported to the board that he had pushed Ackerman out, that they were gone, that he had hired a new PR company called the Mercury Group. It turned out that the Mercury Group was all of the same people working for Ackerman and McQueen. They had just done a spinoff and the Mercury Group was a wholly owned subsidiary. That's right. The Mercury Group was actually owned by Ackerman McQueen. And an Ackerman executive was also president of the Mercury Group. That man? Tony Macris. Needless to say, Neil Knox was furious. And in 1997, at the annual members meeting in Seattle, he called out Wayne LaPierre in front of the membership. The truth is that NRA must get its financial house in order. The truth is that our EVP has spent millions of dollars at variance with board policies without a contract, and the auditors have recognized that fact. Wayne's a great guy. I love him. That's why I moved him from a state liaison over to federal division head. 
That's why I voted for him in 1991. But all the time, guys that are good in one area aren't good in another area. Knox's feelings were clear. In order for the NRA to climb out of the red, Wayne had to go. Knox was up for re-election as first VP at that convention. And if he'd won, he'd be positioned to become president the next year. And that would be the end of Wayne LaPierre, Tony Macris, and Ackerman McQueen. But Tony Macris had a plan. For years, Tony had a strong relationship with Academy Award winner Charlton Heston. Heston was a headlining pro-Second Amendment speaker and often spoke on behalf of the NRA. And as he traveled the country for these speaking engagements, Macris handled the business matters for Heston, often traveling with him. Heston had become a beloved figure within the NRA, and Macris figured that a movie star with that kind of charisma was the perfect choice to run against Neil Knox. Before I take one more step on this march into the next century, though, I want those who stand with me, please, right now, rise from your chairs, take your feet, and show me, show the world, stand with me. Charlton Heston beat Neil Knox by six votes. And the following year, he was unanimously elected as NRA president which meant that LaPierre was safe. Today, with leadership in place, our future leads to unity, growth, honor, and strength. Millions united, going strong. We can carve a powerful new history for Second Amendment freedom in our country. In effect, Tony Macris had saved Wayne LaPierre's job and Ackerman's future with the NRA. Tony is a smart guy. Tony is a very smart guy. If anybody influenced Wayne's way of thinking, is Tony. If anyone wants to know about the direction of NRA under Wayne, it's really the direction of NRA under Tony. He clearly played a more and more important role in positioning Wayne. And the more powerful the NRA became and the more money that it attracted, money attracts power and power attracts money. And there are always going to be people looking for their cut and their ability to get a little piece of the action. That's the nature of the beast. I get it. It all depends on how out of hand it gets. Next time on Gangster Capitalism. Whoever thought a kid from Southwest Virginia would get a chance to hunt Africa, but what I like about it is the community, the camaraderie, the uh, friendships. Wayne reconnects with an old friend in Africa. Wayne and I have been friends most of our adult life. I've known Susan a long time, too, and for them to be back here was very special to me. And as the image of the NRA changes, lots and lots of money changes hands, too. 
Here's a for-profit company, Ackerman, sending one of their people in to lead a nonprofit department that can then move money back to the for-profit company. I saw it as kind of a career advancement thing. If you have any tips you'd like to share, please reach out to us at tips at gangstercapitalism.com or you can leave a voicemail at 347-674-6980. For more information, go to gangstercapitalism.com and follow us on Instagram at gangstercapitalism or on Twitter at gangstercapital. This has been a creation and presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, and me, Andrew Jenks. Written and directed by Zach Levitt and me. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge and Perry Crowell. Edited by Perry Crowell. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Research and production support by Ian Mont. Production management by Terrence Malingone. Studio coordination by Sean Cherry. Artwork and design by Kurt Courtney. And marketing and PR by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. Our original scores by Joel Goodman and our theme song, Your Sins Will Find You Out, is by Eli Paperboy Reed. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.